Welcome to Buddhist Solutions for Life's Problems. I'm Jihi Jolly, and on this show, we talk about how to apply SGI Nitrian Buddhism to the challenges of daily life. Today, we're talking about racism. This episode was slated for later in the year, but we've moved it up to July because many listeners have requested it since America's deep racial inequities and reliance on violence as a way to solve human problems has been exposed like never before in the era of COVID-19. I spoke to a lot of people in the course of writing this one, and you'll hear from seven of them today. The episode is a little longer than usual because today's problem is big. At its root, it's probably the biggest human problem of all. You might be listening to this because you're curious about Buddhism, a friend shared it with you, or you already practice, and you're wondering how Buddhist philosophy can be applied to racism. So before we begin, I'll tell you upfront what I think this podcast can be helpful for, and also a little about my background, which inevitably affects how I hear and share everyone's story. At its root, racism is born of a very human tendency that exists in all of us to discriminate against others, often out of fear. Combined with power, this discrimination, based on skin color, becomes institutionalized, and we see it in virtually every social system in America, economic, health, education, policing, and so on. Today, we're going to discuss the human aspect of all of this. Maybe, for example, you do carry fear of others based on the color of their skin and its counterpart, judgment, but you don't know how to address it in your heart and you're embarrassed to admit this. Or maybe you don't feel fear, but you also don't stand up against racism, interpersonal or systemic, and you wish you did. Or maybe this is all too intellectual and removed for you because your experience is limited to a homogenous community and you're learning about racism in America from books and media, but you wish you could more easily put yourself in other people's shoes. Or maybe you've been standing up for justice and equity your entire life and amidst a pandemic that has turned our planet upside down, you feel too frustrated and too tired to go on. Buddhism directly addresses all these questions, and many more, because chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo is the practice of summoning that potential in us that is the opposite of what drives racism and apathy. For instance, chanting brings out your courage to go on living, to have hope, to learn or unlearn a worldview no matter how uncomfortable it feels, to speak up and to take action. It brings out your compassion to engage in dialogue, to truly listen, to respect people simply because they're people, and to fight for the health and happiness of both yourself and others taking care of yourself along the way. And finally, it brings out your wisdom, which is limitless, to see others, yourself, and your purpose in the world clearly. This is what you'll hear examples of over the next hour from some incredible Black Buddhists and a few others. And now a quick note about me, since you can't see me or the color of my skin. I'm a first-generation immigrant from India who moved to New York when I was four years old, and so I identify as a woman of color. At the same time, I grew up in a predominantly white town with only a small handful of black students, and even fewer Indians, and have both witnessed and experienced discrimination throughout my life in such spaces. Often, when you're the minority in a predominantly white space, you try to take up as little room as possible so as not to be noticed. Toward this aim, I greatly benefited from the privileges of being a light-skinned Indian young woman. I could even pretend to myself I wasn't Indian until somebody made a bad joke like, are you a dot or a teepee Indian? Or did you get an arranged marriage when you visited India? It always shocked me that it was me they were talking about. My brother, based on how he looks, didn't benefit from any such privileges and experienced much harsher discrimination, especially after 9-11 and at times involving the law. So I'm very sensitive to the anger and powerlessness that discrimination breeds. No one should have to bury their true self in any situation. It was only after I started practicing Buddhism in earnest that I started chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo about my role as a responsible citizen of the world. Around the same time, I learned for the first time in college about race and ethnicity in depth, and I realized that I had been conditioned to treasure my light skin and fit in as much as possible in white communities. For example, 
Many Indian girls are taught never to get a tan and in fact use skin lightening products instead. Eventually, I found myself reporting on the experiences of marginalized women as a journalist, and suddenly, my education and feelings of smallness combined into judgment of white people and white culture. By the time I married someone who's half-white and mostly perceived as white, this judgment morphed into a private embarrassment, as if I let people of color down, knowing how my life will be advantaged because of my husband. And in chanting even more about this, I realized I had given in to dividing and labeling groups as better or worse, depending on which community I identify more with at the time. It's difficult not to do this, and I still struggle with it. When you don't have a chance to process your own experiences, it's hard to want to listen to anyone else's. But in researching this episode, I've been really determined to listen as carefully as possible to what each person shares, without requiring them to only represent a specific group, and I invite you to do the same. Because that in itself, the fact that we contain multitudes that no one sees, is the pain of discrimination, but also contains a potential remedy for racism. This episode will explore how Buddhism can help us to open ourselves up to the amazing possibilities that come from engaging with each other's multitudes while fully embracing our own. The first person I'll introduce you to is Dr. Lawrence Carter, the first dean of the Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel at Morehouse College, the historically black men's college in Atlanta, and alma mater of many famous black civil rights activists in the United States. You don't fight racism on the outside. That's like moving chairs around on the deck of the Titanic. You fight racism on the inside. It's an inside job. That's the hardest job because we don't like to look at ourselves. We think we're all right. Though he's Baptist, a few years ago, Dr. Carter wrote a book called A Baptist Preacher's Buddhist Teacher, recalling his life's work and his experiences learning from Martin Luther King Jr. and later Daisaku Ikeda, Buddhist leader of the SGI, who he took on as his personal mentor. We'll hear more from him soon, but first, let's define today's problem. In 2020, the world is remarkably different than it was in the 1960s in that we are more connected than ever by information and therefore more aware of injustice and violence nationally and globally. Second, we're living through a global pandemic that has exposed inequities in the United States which have always been there, but until now, much easier to ignore. And third, in the last few years, more resources, knowledge, and consensus and education about the roots of racism in American history have been created than ever before. Many people I spoke with are more hopeful and excited about change than ever before. Others were overcome with the pain they had never before had the chance to share or heal from. And others still felt racked with guilt, confusion, and hopelessness. So today's question is this. How can Buddhism help us eradicate racism for once and for all? Everybody is asking your question. And I have one concern about this question. I'm not convinced that the people asking the questions are hearing the answers. Difficult to assimilate the answers in our bio data and operationalize the proposals. Because to operationalize the proposals, you've got to work with other people. But you've got to first work on yourself to work with other people. <laughs> What brings about action is when you, in your reflection, connect what you read or what you hear or what you encounter or experience. When you connect that to your existential anxieties, your fear, your anger, your cowardice. When you connect the wisdom of Dr. Ikeda to those intersections where you live, that's when the aha experiences happen. The key thing I took away from my conversation with Dr. Carter is that unless each of us applies Buddhism to precise moments of our daily lives, we'll forever lose to the deep-seated fear that makes us inclined to choose division over respecting life. And chanting nam myoho renge kyo on a daily basis is the starting point for doing this. Today you'll hear from several Buddhists practicing exactly this. And truly, their stories blew me away. Jasmine, a young mother from Louisiana, shared that just two days before we spoke, her friend's mother passed away due to health issues that were neglected by her doctor, a disturbingly common occurrence for communities of color in America. 
and Carolyn, a black woman who grew up in a small town in Wisconsin where she was unable to get a high school job at the local burger place because of the color of her skin, shared how she thought racism had improved after the civil rights movement. But then, years later, as a married woman in California, when she was invited to fly out for an interview for an executive position for which she already had job history, the same thing happened again. When I arrived, the lady picked me up at the airport and she was totally shocked. It was obvious how shocked she was. And so I got my luggage and we walked out to her car. She said, you know, um, I know that I promised that you would be here for a couple days interviewing, but in actuality, I can't hire you. And I said, why? And, she, and this is in the beginning. I had just landed. I had just met her. And I said, why? I said, I have an MBA and blah, blah, blah. And she said, we can't hire a black person for this position. She said, must be pretty, pretty challenging to be a black person and a vice president of a company. That's uh, like a double whammy. You know, a woman, a black person, and then trying to be vice president of a company. She called that a double whammy. So what we did was, I said, well, I can very easily turn around and go back. She says, no. She says, you're a very nice person. I'm very interested in talking with you, but I just want to be upfront and let you know that because you are black, that I wouldn't be able to hire you. So um, I spent the day with her and we had lunch, and then I got back on the plane, and I came home. Here are the questions I asked everyone. First, what is racism? Part of the problem seems to be that there's no universal understanding of it, and we can't take responsibility for what we don't understand. Second, why do we continue to practice racism? At what intersections within our lives have the roots of racism grasped onto us? And finally, what specific teachings from Nichiren Buddhism can we apply, in the words of one person, to excavate it from our lives? Racism is the power to institutionalize and practice prejudice. I think all of my life, it has been the gorilla in the room that everybody was trying to ignore. And you cannot, the nature of reality is that eventually you have to come face to face with what you have denied. Many white Americans, though this is a global problem, but many white Americans are full of fear toward African Americans and they don't like to talk about it, but their behavior betrays them. When you're fearful, you've chosen wrongly. This definition, in nearly the same words, is what I heard from everyone I interviewed. Racism is not simply personal prejudice, but it's the use of power to make sure we don't have to confront or transform our inclination toward prejudice. In reality, race is a social construct. It's not biological. And it has been used to institutionalize difference and therefore hierarchy amongst groups of people. Prejudice and racism are full of fear. And fear is the enemy of freedom and democracy. Fearful people must change their minds, which will transform their behavior. Now, this is a matter of willingness. Fear is a divine alarm clock. It is the indicator that we are believing something that is not true. Dr. Carter is now in his 70s and Ikeda in his 90s, and there's a lot we can learn from the way they have fought for justice by seeking to return to our truest selves, inherently powerful, compassionate, courageous, and interconnected. Today we'll explore how we can do this and also why it's so hard. I would always kind of like, you know, just pick up vibes and maybe if I'm, I'll just be like walking somewhere and I'll see another person maybe move to the other side, like deliberately. That's Hunter Ferguson, a young black man, musician, and artist who grew up in Harlem, New York, where he still lives. He practices Buddhism in his local community and supports a lot of other young men. It kind of like put a little like, uh, like, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this and maybe like it's not okay to express myself fully, you know. It just didn't sit right with me to like, 
limit myself because of like someone else's feeling toward me. As I got older and just, you know, started to, you know, grow into a more of a man, I peep game, you know, I see and I'm very observant. He started practicing Buddhism a few years ago after meeting someone at an overnight security shift who shared about it with him. Initially, he didn't chant very much, but stuck around because of the people. Then, when recovering from an injury, he decided to start chanting and studying Buddhism every day and never looked back. I would chant for maybe like 20, 30 minutes, and, and I was injured that whole summer, so then that just kind of like increased, increased. You know, they helped me to see how to create value from grim moments, like, you know, poisoning the medicine and, you know, how to just be a true, you know, optimistic person, you know, and how to look at our sufferings and struggles as like opportunities. This foundation helped Hunter transform what held him back from expressing himself. And since COVID-19, he's leaned into study once again, as well as music, as a way to spread hope in his community, especially against a backdrop of racism that has become so normalized, it's sometimes easy to accept. I think it still requires us to have that strict notion toward, you know, injustice and, and not to just think that like, oh, you know, that always happens, you know, it's okay. It's not okay, you know? This was a key passage he wanted to share with me from his recent studying of Ikeda's writings. It's from the New Human Revolution, Volume 17, uh, Citadel of the People. And this particular excerpt I want to share, you know, it, it, it has been a, a very intense f few months, but for good reason. And um, I was able to really take something that I can hold for the rest of my life. Sensei writes, he says... I hope you will have the courage to challenge and overcome your personal weakness, such as the tendency to avoid the things you don't like and make excuses to justify your cowardice and negativity. Doing so is the key to your human revolution and to victory in all your endeavors. And, um, man, that just really broke me down, you know. Asagui Keita is, like, really urging us to really challenge that personal weakness, that one thing, you know, that one evil in our lives. And I love how he was so tough on that part. But then he says, once you tackle that, the rest of your life will like really open up. So what makes us ignore, accept, or practice racism? The answer can be found in the concept behind the passage Hunter just shared. In his treatise on establishing the correct teaching for the peace of the land, 13th century Buddhist reformer Nichiren Daishonin states, if people cast aside what is perfect and take up what is biased, can the world escape from the plots of demons? Rather than offering up 10,000 prayers for remedy, it would be better simply to outlaw this one evil. He wrote the treatise, which is a key text of Nichiren Buddhism, to urge government officials to look to the Lotus Sutra to empower people. Ikeda explains, Nichiren Daishonin doesn't remonstrate with the country's rulers in order to demand that they abandon all teachings except for the Lotus Sutra. He is insisting that they abandon intolerant, exclusionary doctrines that call on people to discard the supreme dignity and worth of life. Moreover, he sought, through dialogue, the format in which his remonstration was written to persuade them to choose correct values in order to bring about a true solution to the troubles facing the country. Here is SGI USA youth leader Olivia Saito, who's Japanese-American, raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, and has been practicing Buddhism most of her life. She shared with me how this evil, that is, the ways of thinking that keep people suppressed and ignorant of their potential, shows up in our lives. You know, it's human nature to want to feel that you're better than someone, or it's human nature because of our ego to put others down or want to see hierarchy or want to, you know, like to, to make sense of things in the world. But it's amazing that actually when you practice Buddhism, you have the tools to be able to even though we all have that tendency, you have the tools to be able to really challenge that ego, challenge those things in our lives that make us want to like step over someone else or feel like we're better than or less than someone else. Consider it this way. 
If we don't believe in our lives, we'll be drawn to comparing ourselves with others, constantly seeking to see ourselves as better than or worse than others. This tendency, combined with power and at scale, creates a society based fundamentally on disrespect and division. So I, I didn't think I was going to do this, but I feel compelled to share this because in terms of like what I've witnessed, one thing that that has really like affected me is seeing the black men in my life be treated as second class citizens. So my brother-in-law wrote this post and I just wanted to share this briefly because it's it shows up differently for black women as it does for black men. This is Ashley Bunn, a young black woman originally from upstate New York who has lived in many different parts of America. So this is what my brother-in-law wrote. 13, four, two. I remember these numbers every day. 13 is the number of times I've been detained by police that were looking for someone that looked like me. Four is the number of times I've been placed in handcuffs against my will while police, according to them, de-escalated a threat. I've also been surrounded by cops, had guns pointed at my chest, and prayed because I thought I was going to be killed twice. There isn't a black man that I know who hasn't been through similar events. Sadly, when I've had these conversations with other black men, there's always a sense of helplessness that comes with trying to support each other. Ashley shared so many stories with me about growing up Buddhist and how she has responded to racism using her practice. Currently, she's an instructional systems designer living in Washington, D.C. Um, and so, you know, I've never had a gun pointed at me, but the types of racism that I experience are those icky microaggressions that I never fully I never realized that people still did those things. I've had white men call me aggressive because they weren't listening to me in a meeting and I was leading the meeting, but they consistently turned and would talk to my white boss. And my white boss would say, Ashley created this course. She has the answer. And they'd say, yeah, 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 no, okay. We're gonna get to Ashley, but what do you think? It hurts, it really does, it really does. I thank my parents every chance I get for raising me as a Buddhist in America because this form of Buddhism teaches me that my growth, my potential, my intelligence, my talent is only limited by my own belief in myself. And in a nation that was built on the belief that my ancestors and people who look like me are not technically 100% people is very traumatic. And you're reminded of that every single day. So having a philosophy and a teaching like Nichiren Daishonin Buddhism has allowed me to cut through other people's beliefs of my abilities as a black woman. Like Ashley, each person I spoke to has been using these experiences to cultivate their own ability to stand up for justice based on humanism, no matter if they were the target or the witness, and I was blown away by their conviction in chanting over and over again. But first, let's quickly consider our second question. Why do we seek to institutionalize our differences in the first place? I've been reading a lot of different things from Sensei and he shares in the 2001 peace proposal that like a self-ruled by eagle will only look out for themselves. He says in its essence, discrimination is the act of throwing up barriers of difference among the phenomena that fill the universe and establishing among them a hierarchy of value, thus breaking the bonds that link and connect all things. This is then used to justify oppression and exploitation. As such, it must be condemned as a desecration of the sanctity of life itself. Here's our first key point. Buddhism teaches we are inherently interconnected. But as Dr. Carter explained to me, often we choose to focus on our differences because of our own fear and ignorance. You see, people who are full of fear want everybody to conform to their biases. 
but they have these biases because of their ignorance. You see, most people who are fearful of African Americans and disrespectful of other minorities don't believe they're contributive because they have studied school systems with books that were not inclusively written. So what are they afraid of? Change. And they don't want to share the stage equally with anybody because secretly they see themselves as superior and everybody else as inferior. Fear is pain pushing us to choose healing. But it seems that everybody just wants to specialize in hurting. And there is our second. The fear Dr. Carter is describing is considered a function of the lesser self, our inner negativity. Basing our happiness or security on the unhappiness of others is impossible, according to Buddhism. Happiness that comes from feeling secure or powerful at the expense of others isn't true happiness. It's born from a place of lack, and at scale, it creates disaster, as we discussed on our episode about COVID-19. Therefore, Buddhists chant nam myoho renge kyo which allows us to access our greater self, our inherent courage, compassion, and wisdom on a daily basis and make decisions on how to engage with the people around us based on this enlightened life state and all the virtues of the Buddha encompassed in it. In a poem written after the riots in LA following the beating of Rodney King by police officers who were acquitted of charges now nearly 30 years ago, Ikeda shared this message with the SGI Buddhist community. For several brilliant centuries, Western civilization has encouraged the independence of the individual, but now appears to be facing a turbulent twilight. The waves of egoism eat away at the shores of contemporary society. The tragedy of division wraps the world in a thick fog. Individuals are becoming mere scraps, mere fragments, competing reed bundles of lesser self threatened with mutual collapse. My friends, Please realize that you already possess the solution to this quandary. First, you must break the hard shell of the lesser self. This you must absolutely do. Then, direct your lucid gaze toward your friends and fellow members. People can only live fully by helping others to live. When you give life to friends, you truly live. Cultures can only realize their further richness by honoring other traditions. And only by respecting natural life can humanity continue to exist. Sometimes mentally I'm just like so in my own way, you know, and I really got to like just chant to like, you know, just get out and just have confidence in myself and, and yeah, really express that true compassion. So once you just like make that action of just either shoot the text or shoot the call and then, he, then they hit back, it's like, okay, bomb. So then we're going to flow. Hunter is describing his daily activities as a young men's leader in the SGI in Harlem, which consists of local community district meetings and a lot of dialogue with other young men in the area. Like I remember, and this was like my first time I became a, a, a chapter leader, and it was just like this list, it was like 80 names. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know anyone. You know, I'm from Harlem, but it's like, you know, I don't know these people. So just one by one, you know, I, I called all these people for the first time, just random, you know, just out of sincerity. If I call, just to hear their voice and then, you know, for them to share something that inspires me and then it just gets deeper and deeper and that's awesome, you know, that's, that's community, you know, and I think that's all everyone really wants, you know what I'm saying? And we, you know, speaking for myself as well, we, everybody, you know, first tendency is maybe to kind of like block off. It's like, if I'm feeling something, it's like, almost like, oh, let me remove myself. Because I don't want to be, I don't want to be seen as vulnerable. I don't want to get like, you know, but really, you know, once you come into contact with someone else, that's always the immediate relief. If I can be an example of that, then I think I'll see it represented in my life. Hearing him share this made me think of one of the key texts that my own community has been studying recently, which is a lecture Ikeda delivered at Teachers College, Columbia University, entitled Thoughts on Education for Global Citizenship. It reads in part, Buddhism teaches that both good and evil are potentialities that exist in all people. Compassion consists in the sustained and courageous effort to seek out the good in any person, whoever they may be, however they may behave. It means striving through sustained engagement to cultivate the positive qualities in oneself and others. 
Engagement, however, requires courage. There are all too many cases in which compassion, owing to a lack of courage, remains mere sentiment. Buddhism calls a person who embodies these qualities of wisdom, courage, and compassion, who strives without cease for the happiness of others, a bodhisattva. In this sense, it could be said that the bodhisattva provides an ancient precedent and modern exemplar of the global citizen. He further defines the essential elements of global citizenship or bodhisattva practice as follows. The wisdom to perceive the interconnectedness of all life and living, the courage not to fear or deny difference, but to respect and strive to understand people of different cultures and to grow from encounters with them, and the compassion to maintain an imaginative empathy that reaches beyond one's immediate surroundings and extends to those suffering in distant places. He writes, The all-encompassing interrelatedness that forms the core of the Buddhist worldview can provide a basis, I feel, for the concrete realization of these qualities of wisdom, courage, and compassion. Which brings us to the main point of this episode. Chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo allows us to actualize these elements of global citizenship in our daily life. Think of it this way. If we had the courage not to fear or deny difference, we would have to call out inequities in society with open eyes, and we'd have to find a way to dialogue across ideological differences to find solutions for them. If we had true compassion, we'd be angry at injustices that our neighbors face, and we'd hold space for people who have been conditioned to think differently than us. Most of all, if we viewed ourselves as interconnected, we'd take action to support each other. Here's a story shared with me by Jeff, a young man from Chicago who has been engaging in a lot of dialogue with his friends about racism. He's also the only white person I chose to include in the episode because what he said really struck me. There's another story uh, in which the Buddha came across a deer lying on the ground with a hunter's arrow piercing its side. As the deer slowly died, two holy men standing over the body and arguing over the exact time life leaves the body asked the Buddha's opinion. Ignoring them, the Buddha immediately walked up to the deer and drew out the arrow, saving the animal's life. And I feel like this is kind of the state of, you know, racism in this country is like these two holy men are looking over this deer, wondering, oh, when is it going to die? What's going on? You know, like rather than actually taking some action and going and pulling the arrow out, you know, and I feel like that's kind of where we've come right now is this kind of reckoning of like, why have you just been standing here watching this creature die rather than taking action? So where do Buddhists begin? Everyone I spoke to said at the root of the problem, because if we don't, then even if we seek awareness, equity, and justice in the short term, without changing our fundamental tendency toward division, along the way, we may inadvertently create new systems of oppression. A profound example I came across is in the student protest movement in the late 1960s in Japan that Ikeda recounts in his book, The New Human Revolution, where students who sincerely wanted to end oppression by being self-critical and not perpetuating systems they were born into, ended up using self-criticism as a weapon against each other, alienating and dismissing peers in the struggle who they deemed weren't self-critical enough. Of this period, Ikeda writes, The aim defines the methods. The instant violence is used, even the noblest ideal is defiled. Any inhumanity or contradictions that arise in the pursuit of reform reflect the kind of society that will emerge after the struggle is done. Which brings us to Jeff in Chicago, who started practicing Buddhism as a teenager when he struggled deeply with social anxiety and agoraphobia. He would move from school to school, never quite feeling relief, until he began chanting. Not only was I able to finally stay at one school, and finish rather than jumping around to a different school every few months. Um, but there were other th changes in how I interacted with people that I wasn't even aware of. Like Hunter, Jeff supports fellow members in his city of Chicago. I really think that there are a lot of people out there who are kind of have been so locked into how the way that they've lived up until that point, into the way that they've kind of like the patterns of behavior that they've had up until that point. I think that unless there's some kind of deeper kind of tectonic shift in their lives, they're not going to be able to open up enough to hear the things that they need to hear in order to change their lives, much less improve 
the world at large. And I'm certainly not exempted from the ways that I was socialized to be a white male in this country, right? But, you know, being in the SGI has also socialized me to be concerned about people and to, like, care about people. This is why I devote so much of my time to Buddhist activities. His awareness of interconnectedness based on daily chanting helps him navigate and seek out diversity, even though he grew up in one of the most segregated cities in America. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is, uh, up until a few years ago, it was the second most segregated city in the United States. Um, you know, Chicago, where I live now, has been at number four for quite a while. But, um, you know, growing up there, I had friends who in their family, like, in high school, their family would, like, not go into downtown. Like, they would stay on, on the south side of Milwaukee, which is the predominantly white side, and they wouldn't go into downtown because they were scared of crime. You know, and when someone says they're scared of crime, really, that's a euphemism of, like, they're scared of black people, right? And then the same thing of, like, I knew because of SGI, because of growing up in SGI, I practiced with the organization, and I knew people who lived on the north side, who were afraid to come into downtown because they were scared of the police. For him, SGI meetings were a tiny microcosm where those divisions and that fear disappeared. Because people practice in neighborhood groups and at shared community centers, you constantly meet and practice with people you may not ordinarily spend time with, which for me, who had a similar experience to Jeff, but in New York, is one of the most powerful things about the SGI community, which is the most diverse Buddhist community in the United States. Here's a deeper look at what interconnection is. Ikeda writes, Buddhism uses the term dependent origination to describe symbiotic relationships. Nothing, no one, exists in isolation. Each individual existence functions to bring into being the environment which in turn sustains all other existences. All things, mutually supportive and related, form a living cosmos, which modern philosophy might term a semantic whole. This is a conceptual framework through which Mahayana Buddhism views the natural universe. The greater self elucidated in Mahayana Buddhism is another expression for the kind of openness and expansiveness of character that embraces the sufferings of all people as one's own, always seeking amidst the realities of human society ways of alleviating the pain and augmenting the happiness of others. I am convinced that only the solidarity of such natural human nobility will break down the isolation of the modern self, opening horizons of new hope for civilization. Reading this helped me understand that an awareness of interconnection lays the foundation for the second two and truly difficult aspects of global citizenship, the courage not to fear or deny difference, and imaginative empathy for people suffering in distant places. Through my conversation with Olivia, however, I learned that in order to engage in either of these things, we have to have at the center of our heart the belief that I have unlimited potential within me and every other person does too. Without this view and a high enough life state to support it, even when we have the best of intentions, we may devalue the people around us. And I'll share with you one story. When I was in college, there was a situation where I was supporting another um, young woman and uh, she was going through a really, really tough time. And so I was, you know, doing my best to be there for her. And uh, at that time, two young women leaders, they came to visit me and they just wanted to check in and see how I was doing. And I was like, I'm okay. And I, and I started crying and I said, you know, but you know, this person, they also knew this person and they knew I was supporting her. And I said something to the effect of, I just wish that I could take on this young woman's suffering for her. I don't want to see her suffer. I just wish I could take on this suffering for her. And the young women's leaders at the time, they said, that is so arrogant. And I was like floored. I was like, what do you mean? But they said, that's so arrogant because you have no conviction in her life to be able to overcome this, you have no conviction that this is her mission and that she will become absolutely happy, regardless of whatever suffering she's experiencing now, that she can absolutely transform it. So they really touched on my lack of conviction in the other person's life. And that I will never forget. So it's not just a like, I'll do anything for you because I know you're suffering. It's like, 
you're suffering and I believe a thousand percent that you will be able to stand up because you have a mission and you are strong and you have the Buddha nature, right? And which is in essence what Sensei is telling us over and over and over and over again. Her words deeply resonated with me because Buddhist compassion is incredibly hard to understand. It's simultaneously a fierce commitment to helping others bring out their fundamental power and deep empathy for their suffering. In one of my all-time favorite lectures on a teaching of Nichiren Daishonin called Letter of Condolence, Ikeda writes, The Japanese word for compassion, jihi, includes the meaning of suffering together or crying out in sympathy with others. The Buddha, first of all, shares others' sufferings. Take the case of a mother whose child has died, who's sitting in a daze on the roadside. Probably no words can heal her heart. And passerby, unable to do anything, will have no choice but to walk briskly past. Occasionally, a cleric may stop before her and try to instruct her with a look of affected enlightenment. But no one can truly share her grief. What would the Buddha do in such an instance? He would probably sit down at the mother's side, and he might simply continue sitting there, not saying a word. Even if no words were exchanged, the mother would sense the warm reverberations of the Buddha's concern. Eventually, she would lift up her face, and before her eyes would be the face of the Buddha, who understands all her sorrows. The Buddha would nod, and the mother would nod in reply. Even without words, there is no greater encouragement than heart-to-heart -heart exchange. On the other hand, even if a million words are spoken, nothing will be communicated in the absence of heartfelt exchange. At length, the Buddha would stand up, and the mother, as though following his example, would probably also rise. Then together, they would move forward one step, then another, their way gently illuminated by the light of the moon. The Buddha would tirelessly offer encouragement until the mother could lift her head high, until she could determine to lead a life of great value for the sake of her deceased child. Someone may expound a fine teaching while abiding in a place of comfort and safety, but that is not Buddhism. A genuine Buddha lives among the people, grieves and suffers with them, and shares their hopes and laughter. That's how the original Buddha, Nichiren Daishonin, conducted himself. Someone battling destiny feels like there is a gale raging through their heart. When we encounter people in such a state, we should stand with them in the rain, become sopping wet with them, and work with them to find a way out of the storm. Can I just share like this one little tidbit um, about Dean Carter? So he came to the DC Center um, when he was promoting his book, Baptist Preacher's Buddhist Teacher. At the time, I was really angry and struggling with like, white people can't be this ignorant. Like there's just no way that they can be so completely oblivious. And so I asked him like, how do you, how do you battle that? And what he said that really just shifted my perception of all of this is that like, it's not our place to question or understand someone else's intention. Um, it's to like really look at their potential and connect with their lives that will make the difference. In his book, Dr. Carter draws parallels between Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision of the World House and Ikeda's vision of global citizenship, both of which are based on a belief that all human beings are interconnected. He writes, When I met Daisaku Ikeda, I understood at least the possibility of realizing Martin Luther King Jr.'s utopian vision of the world's house. King emphasized that we are all involved in a network of mutuality, a single garment of destiny, and Ikeda talks about the interconnectedness of everything, dependent origination, the inseparability of life. The whole Nichiren chant, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, is connected to this human interwovenness and the inherent dignity of every human being. What Martin Luther King refers to as the sacredness of all human personality, this transcends nationalism and is cosmopolitan in every respect. It transcends all boundaries, and it takes precedent over militarily enforced sovereign government policies. So when people are hurting, we are obligated to be of assistance to them, any and everywhere in the world. On the night that Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, I learned 
of him being shot while my girlfriend and I were watching a play on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And during the intermission, the dean of the School of Theology at Boston University, who signed Martin Luther King's degree and who the next month would sign mine, came into the theater and informed several of us that Dr. King had been shot in Memphis. And when I asked, is he all right? He said, 30 minutes ago, he died. I knew instantly that my life would never be the same. In my own naivete, I could not imagine who would do something so horrible to someone who wouldn't hurt a fly and was trying to help heal the nation and the world. He strolled, walked across the backdrop of this nation like a giant, and he was like a parent to me, a father figure. He was a mentor before I even knew the word mentor. He had recruited me in the 10th grade to come to Morehouse College in a private conversation. And so that night, I committed myself to a ministry of peace, racial peace, religious peace, and peace between the nations. So every morning, I have been shaken by that purpose, getting up. Like Dr. Carter, each person I spoke to has found their own unique way to make their own version of that commitment. Racism makes you give up. Racism forces you into apathy. Racism forces you to shut down. This Buddhism forces you to look at a situation and decide whether or not you are going to win. That's Jasmine Pogue, the young Black mother I mentioned earlier whose friend's mother had passed away, speaking about her own struggles dealing with injustices she sees and experiences. Having grown up with parents in the military, she's also lived in many different cities and finally chose to stay in Louisiana, where she began practicing Buddhism in her early 20s. And that's a foreign concept in our education system, in the United States of America, we're told all the time to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but we're not given any bootstraps to pull ourselves up by. This Buddhism gives you the bootstraps to figure out a way out of a situation despite all of the adversity that comes your way. So I went to, I don't know what year this was, maybe 2017, I went to this People of African Descent Conference and our organization has this Florida Nature and Culture Center. I just call it like a Buddhist spa that we get to go to, get out of like the regular world and just like get embraced by Buddhism and good food and like hanging out with people. And so we have this People of African Descent Conference, which most of us call it the Black Buddhist Conference. And basically people from all across the United States that are Black and they're Buddhist go to this conference to be immersed in blackness and Buddhism. So I went there um, and there was racial turmoil and tensions then when I went. And um, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna go to this black Buddhist conference and I'm gonna be surrounded by people who are angry just like me. And I was like, we're gonna just tear down the system and just be angry. And actually when I got there, that's not what happened. And I was really encouraged to recognize my own mission in eradicating racism in the United States. And what I started realizing is that whenever racist things would come up in my life or I was dealing with a racist system, I would shut down and I would stop chanting. I would go into this negative, angry space. Instead of defying what racism wanted me to do, I would do exactly what it is that racism wanted me to do, shut down and stop fighting. And this Buddhism is like, nope, 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 nope. You gotta fight, you have got to fight. And that is what helped me to continue. And that's why I continue to fight because I know that I have that fight in me somewhere and I just gotta find it. And so if I go and I chant about it, I can find that fight and I can continue moving forward. Jasmine is now a facilitator with an organization called Dialogue on Race Louisiana, which helps people educate themselves about racism in the United States through a six-week dialogue series. The institutional structures that were created to continue racism, I think for me, what I'm realizing is that racism exists because we don't have a critical mass of people who want to make it different. You know, so... Black people make up 
a certain percentage of the population here in America. And not all black people really want to do the work anyway to eradicate racism. It's very tiring. It's emotional. It's overwhelming. Uh, And there are white people who want to do that work. There are other people of color who want to do that work. But that critical mass has not been met yet. And so I'm trying to understand, okay, that means that's where Buddhism comes in then to really raise that, raise it to a point where there is a critical mass of people who want to do something about the evil that exists within this country. I really feel as if, okay, now I'm really empowered to do more to share Buddhism with other people because I think that that is the key to the critical mass that we need to transform and eradicate this from our society. Racism is a learned behavior and it can be unlearned, but we as a society need to manifest the courage to have compassion for people who hate us. That's Ashley again. Both she and Jasmine blew me away with how they have internalized Buddhism to have really tough conversations with courage and compassion. And that's what I've come to understand with this Buddhism. So, you know, Nichiren Daishonin experienced so much hate and was exiled three different times in his lifetime in Japan. And that's that's true. It's a part of Japanese history. It's not folklore. And he died peacefully of his own, you know, on his own time. And I think about him and I think about Daisaku Ikeda, who's my personal mentor, because those people dealt with so much hatred and discrimination in their own times and in their own countries. And the way that they got through it was compassion and courage. And so that is how I've been addressing people. Yes, Black people, people of color, are we're very, very angry. But we're angry because white people for so long have lacked true compassion towards us. And so even though I am angry, I come to those conversations with white people with compassion. We're going to have a dialogue. And we're going, I am going to do everything in my power to connect to your Buddha nature, to your humanity. And so when I'm struggling with these feelings, I put them in the center of my mind as I sit in front of my Buddhist altar and my Gohanzen. And I recite Nam-myoho-renge-kyo over and over again, not with the intention of strategizing and thinking about, okay, if I do this, he's going to do that. If I say this, he's going to say that. But really just sort of focusing on what I want my outcome to be and what is driving me for this outcome. Is it that I want this person to be punished, that I want them to be fired, that I want them to be shamed? And I process that and I understand, like, is that is that really what serves me as a person in society, as a Buddhist in America, is that serving me? Am I making the right cause? And then I come to understand when I step away from the Gohanzen, when I step away from chanting, I, I really gain a better sense of like what in my heart is, is, vi- is vital to this fight for world peace. It's easy to just say, oh, well, this is just racism. But the reality is there's a human person behind that. And racism is not this finite thing that we can clump together all of the people we've labeled as racist and put them on an island by themselves. We can't do that. So that's that's why I chant and that's the way that I chant. I chant to manifest not only the courage, but also the wisdom to see my environment, my actions, and my situation crystal clear. And I take action from that standpoint, as opposed to like, you're a racist, dirty cop. And like, you know, that person still has to live a life. So how do we empower this person to take responsibility for their actions and recognize their actions clearly. Hearing her say this made me think of Ikeda's emphasis on the individual. He writes, It is my view that the root of all these problems is our collective failure to make the human being, 
human happiness, the consistent focus and goal in all fields of endeavor. Interestingly, I came across some research from the Harvard Intergroup Neuroscience Lab, which studies, in their own words, how the mind, brain, and behavior change when social relationships shift from me versus you to us versus them. They write, Intergroup conflict has been described as one of the greatest problems facing the world today. By some counts, over 200 million people have been killed in acts of genocide, war, and other forms of group conflict over the last century. How do we reconcile these statistics with rapidly accumulating evidence indicating that people are fundamentally averse to harming one another? The way we see it, intergroup dynamics are a critical boundary condition on our most cherished theories of morality and justice and associated psychological and neural processes. For example, we have documented that acting as part of a competitive group can reduce the salience of one's moral standards and in turn enable outgroup harm. It's fascinating to think that humans are not inclined to harm each other as individuals, but groups, maybe. Ikeda continues, The human being is the point to which we must return and from which we must depart anew. What is required is a human transformation, a human revolution. It's important when you start relating to people to learn how to listen so that you hear people on the factual level and on the feeling level. We don't really know how to dialogue. Because we're so interested in getting our point across, no one ever introduced to us the whole concept of turn-taking and turn-yielding, and how you qualify to give your opinion. So here, Dr. Ikeda emphasizes soft power, learning how to dialogue, not being so aggressive. His whole emphasis on value creation is really neighbors first. I'll leave you with one last story that deeply moved me, which is from Carolyn, and I feel encapsulates the third of the three elements of global citizenship beautifully, which is to have imaginative empathy for people suffering in distant places. Sometimes, distant places can be very close to home. You know, I really didn't respect my stepfather because he, 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 he was an alcoholic. Even though, you know, he went to school and he got his AA degree, he always felt, you know, insecure around white people. And I saw him deteriorate to, in alcoholism because of inability to be able to function with respect. So naturally, you know, even though black people have the opportunity to vote and whatever, you know, all that, but it's still this innate dislike or disrespect or feeling as though you're not good enough or and black people feeling they're not good enough and white people feeling they're not good enough so there's this this fundamental disrespect for the life of anyone that's different than you but after she started chanting she found that her respect and empathy for his challenges started growing but now when i look at him and look at some of the challenges he went through and how he tried to improve himself. Hmm. You know, when I got married, we were on a, a boat. We had our reception on a boat. And most of the people there were white or Japanese. And he was so insecure. You know, they had columns and he was standing behind the columns you know, kind of peeking, looking at the people. But he was terrifically uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. And my mom, you know, I, we had paid for them to come and paid for their hotel room, and he was uncomfortable in the hotel room. I, I hadn't seen that before because I used to always be angry with him, you know, because he was drinking. But I began to see, you know, his vulnerability, his sensibility. You know, I really respect his life. And I respect him as a result. So it doesn't matter, you know, like if you're poor or you don't have this or whatever. If you learn to really appreciate life and respect people's life and know that everyone has the, 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 the Buddha nature inside, the truth of the matter is we do. And we, we don't have to be victims, no matter what color you are. 
but uh, most importantly, black people. We don't have to be victims. Carolyn herself lives by these words. She shared so many examples of how practicing Buddhism can help us to focus on supporting ourselves and other people rather than giving in to hurt or anger. After that experience with the job interview, she went on to use her practice to completely transform her career and founded a home healthcare company serving LA County that grew to be incredibly successful and for which she has received national recognition and of which she was a CEO for 20 years. She also supports women in the SGI Buddhist community throughout Los Angeles. What I've learned from all these conversations is that chanting empowers us to see our unique identity and all the experiences that come with it as part of our purpose, fully utilizing all aspects of our life to overcome our suffering, take effective action in society in a way that's true to us, and encourage others they can too. It may sound tiring, but truly, I've never spoken to people with more joy, lightness, or energy in their hearts. The week I first spoke to Ashley, for example, she had spent six hours protesting, engaged in a two-hour dialogue with her neighbors in the pouring rain, and then given herself a day of total rest and refreshment. In her words, a day of black joy. The reality is, while we're here as human beings, we have the opportunity to change whatever tendencies in our hearts, in our families, and in our communities hold us back, and really enjoy our lives, even while fighting for justice, for the sake of everyone who will come after us. Nietzsche and Daishonen writes, If you stop to consider, you will realize that at one time or another in the past, all men have been your father, and all women your mother. Thus, in the course of all the many lifetimes and existences you have lived through, you have come to owe a debt of gratitude to all living beings. And since this is so, you should help all of them attain Buddhahood. The person in your environment that you see as your enemy is the person that is there to teach you something about yourself. Chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo and being a Nichiren Daishonin Buddhist is a privilege. But with privilege comes responsibility. Like I can't have Michael Hansen and all of my amazing benefits because girl, they have been incredible. You would not believe some of the stuff that I've had happen to me. It's crazy. It's, it's mystic. It's powerful. Um, but I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to transform my environment, my community, and if you choose to come with me and build that greater community, if you want to build a community that is larger than people that only look like you, what happens is that everyone feels safe and secure and everyone is allowed the ability to be happy. So if we go back to our original questions, first, what's racism? Second, why do we continue to practice it? And third, what can we apply from Buddhism to transform it at its root? Here are the key takeaways. Racism is the use of power to institutionalize prejudice, and prejudice, simply put, is an incorrect worldview created by our ego, or lesser self, which is ruled by a deep-seated fear and negativity. We practice racism because it's easier to group other people on false distinctions than it is to grapple with our own fear of difference. Unchecked, this tendency creates enormous systemic inequities and fuels intergroup violence. But at its root, the desire to break the chains of interconnection can be changed by transforming our hearts. Bodhisattva practice, which consists of chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo to win over our internal negativity and fear, and unceasing open-hearted dialogue that helps us reconnect to ourselves and everyone around us, can change this tendency at its root. And from this expansive, compassionate place within us, we can take wise action to stand up against behavior and systems that disrespect human life and help others to do the same, wherever we are, in our own unique way. I'll leave you with three final thoughts from Dr. Carter, Olivia, and Jasmine. Everybody has one assignment. It is an assignment to work on yourself. You can't work on somebody else because the only thing that you actually have 
control of is you. Now there are so many ways to come at this. The one thing I like about Buddhism is that it has made happiness central. If you come out all right, then everything else will come out all right. <laughs> but you have to acquire a capacity for transcendence, for moving beyond boundaries, for discovering that you are not separate from everybody else. I guess you could call this sustainable individualism, sustainable individuality. If it's not sustainable, it isn't going to be just. It's not going to be mutual because sustainability and justice are synonyms for each other. So be yourself, which may be different from all the other selves around you, but you don't want to invade other people's psychological space because the goal is understanding that you can't be who you're supposed to be unless I'm who I'm supposed to be. And you see, at the heart of all of this is humanity. So it isn't something you have to become. It's something you have to reveal. Your destiny is already within you. It's not outside of you. But somebody has convinced you that you've got to get it like it belongs to somebody else. No, just be, allow, let it come out. I'm determined to continue to evolve in my own life and in my own heart. It's a spiritual, like, a strenuous exercise. It's not just, oh, like, I get it. I'm doing my human revolution. It's this inward spiritual process that each one of us ultimately has to undergo to be able to create a different reality, a different world. That's why I chant every single day and night to fight against those tendencies that say, this is impossible and you have to give up. Because it's not impossible. It was created to be sustaining and enduring, but so is this Buddhism. This Buddhism has endured for much longer than the system of racism in the United States of America. I'm determined we're going to eradicate racism in my lifetime. And that we're going to adopt Nichiren's Buddhism and this idea, the Lotus Sutra that teaches every single person has a mission in this world to make it better. That is my life's calling, to leave the world better than I have found it. I'm in a long procession and I will depart this planet like everybody else with disappointments. I won't get it all done, but my successors, I hope they'll have it just a little easier. Next time, we'll be talking about Buddhism and creativity. And as always, if you like what you've heard, please leave us a rating or review. And don't hesitate to reach out to me with questions or comments at podcast at sgi-usa.org.